1: Chapter 2, and you can find that on page 833 in your pew Bible. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. Live each good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us.
0: Well, good morning. Great to have you all here today. Thank, and welcome to week number two of our focus season. Uh, I hope that you guys are in a group, that you have joined one, and are processing through all of the information with other people in your small group. And one of the great reasons uh, to do that is, uh, I think it was made very uh, apparent to me yesterday in our small group discussion. Uh, And that is, it seems like there were a number of people who were probably a little uncomfortable with the message last week and actually the topic last week. And so, you know, the point of, of doing the discussion is, is to, to talk it through and to bring some nuance to the conversation. But I wanted to make the, the message intentionally provocative for you. If you remember, we talked about Jesus uh, when, when some people were looking for him, or actually when his family was looking for him, and, uh, and he said, you know, who are my mother and brother and sisters and that, and basically said, anyone who does the will of of my, uh, uh, does the will of my father is my mother and brother and sisters. And so we talked about what it means for the church to be the family of God. And like I said, for a lot of people, especially ones who have been a part of maybe some toxic church environments or some unhealthy communities, that can be really uncomfortable for you. And, uh, and it can seem kind of authoritarian, and that's certainly not the point at all. But I wanna, wanted to be able to wrestle with that passage, because I think too often, when we approach the hard sayings of Jesus, the first thing we say is, is well, Jesus really didn't mean that, before we even have the chance to, to talk about what he might have meant. And so, yes, while I do believe that we don't have to deny our nuclear family in order to be a part of the family of God... I think it is something that we need to wrestle with. What does it mean for the church to be the family of God, not just in theory, but in practice? And I think to some degree, it means that there will be people who look at us from the outside and they will say something like, you did that for someone in your church family? I wouldn't even do that for my family. (laughs) But there should be this sort of deep caring and love within the church community that other people on the outside may think is kind of strange, but it's also something that they long for, especially in a society like ours that is so prone to disconnection and loneliness. We should be a community of people where people can find connection, where they can find family, even ones who don't have a nuclear family. And so I'm glad that you're wrestling with it, and that's what our discussions do. I think we came to a really healthy place in our small group, and I hope yours did as well. Well, today we're going to move on and we are going to talk about the calling of church. Now, strangely enough, the last couple of years since COVID, my wife and I have gotten into a particular kind of movie or particular kind of actually TV series, superhero, superhero movies and sci-fi movies and series, like Star Wars, many of the Marvel movies, some other things, maybe things that you wouldn't necessarily uh, expect from me or certainly not expect from my wife. But, you know, many of them are actually based on old comic books. Some of you, if you are a, a, among the older crowd, maybe you were reading some of these comic books way back in the day. Uh, but in any case, the thing about that all of these movies and series have in common is that they have either superheroes or supervillains. And the thing about superheroes or supervillains is that they all have origin stories, okay? You know, the, the backstory that explains why they behave the way they do. For instance, Batman, right? Bruce Wayne's parents were murdered in front of him. And so naturally, what does he do? He dresses up like a bat, gets a handy tool belt, and applies vigilante justice to Gotham City, right? I mean, if you were in his shoes, you would do the same thing, right? The origin stories explain where they came from. Or, or think about Captain America. Steve Rogers contracted polio when he was a young child, and even though he survived the disease when he grew up, he grew up as a, a scrawny, scrawny and weak kid. But, but he also had a heart of virtue and a, and a spirit of patriotism, and so he was the perfect candidate for Project Rebirth, which was a, a scientific program intended to create a whole army of, of super soldiers to defeat the Nazis. But of course, something went wrong, and he underwent the procedure, and afterwards, the whole facility was destroyed. And so rather than having an entire army of super soldiers, it was just him, Captain America, fighting for God and country. He dedicated his life to it at that point. Now, of course, villains always have origin stories as well. Maybe one of my favorite villain origin stories is that of Eric Killmonger from the Black Panther movie son of a, of a prince from uh, the kingdom of Wakanda and a woman from Oakland, California, he was abandoned to the Oakland ghetto uh, by the Wakandan royal family. They denied that he even existed. And, and seeing what little this powerful kingdom of Wakanda did for black people around the globe, he developed a growing sense of, of bitterness toward them. And it fueled his career as a Navy SEAL And it turned into a singular quest to stage a coup, to find Wakanda, uh, and the black become the Black Panther and send weapons to marginalized groups around the world. In fact, his uh, his backstory almost makes a sympathetic figure out of a guy intent on committing mass murder, doesn't it? Origin stories. We love origin stories. We need origin stories. But why do we need? origin stories, well, I think it's because of this. I think it's because heroes or villains are difficult to understand until we understand where they came from. I mean, what would make someone so bitter that they would dedicate their lives to inflicting suffering and death and chaos on the world? Or on the flip side, what would make someone so committed to altruism that they would continually put themselves in life and death situations for the sake of other people well it's their origin story but of course we don't have to go to superheroes or supervillains to see this principle at play just think for a minute about the mother who loses a child to a drunk driver dedicates the rest of her life to making sure that no one ever again drives drunk okay understand the origin story and you understand her dedication to the cause an experience becomes a story, and a story becomes a calling. And when someone has a calling, it's almost like they were born to do the very thing that they've dedicated their lives to. Now, we could extend this out a little bit further. And, and you of course, you know that church history is also filled with many people who did his, uh, heroic things. The early church martyrs and martyrs today who give their lives For the cause of Christ. Believers in the early centuries of Christianity. We've talked about this before. Who stayed in the cities while there was a a, a raging uh, pandemic or plague going on. And they saved countless lives in the process. Missionaries who have traveled to hostile places to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. What would cause them to do something like this? Well, it's their origin story. Well, whether or not you realize it, we as the church, as the people of God, have an origin story. You also have a calling. Okay? When you decide to follow Jesus, you become a part of the family of God, the church. And while we do have some flexibility about how our local congregation does things, we actually don't get to decide our purpose. We don't get to decide our own mission. Because our mission is determined by our identity. Maybe another way to say this is, is what we do is determined by who we are. And so many people, even many Christians, actually treat the church like it's a human-made institution. But according to Scripture, the church was God's idea. And while humans have always lived that out imperfectly, at its best, we believe That the church is the family of God called and empowered by God to give ourselves for the glory of God and for the sake of the world. Okay, And so in order to understand who we are, we're actually going to go through the church's origin story today. Because that origin story tells us who we are and what we are to dedicate our lives to. And so I want to warn you, You probably want to buckle your seatbelt because we're going to go through the Bible really fast. And you do have note sheets there in front of you. And it might be helpful, especially if you're a part of a small group and you're going to to be discussing this later. It probably will be helpful for you to, to jot down some of the notes about this. But we're going to walk through the backstory of the church. All right, so let's start at the very beginning. And I found it's a very good place to start. Genesis 1 tells us, First of all, that God made us in his image, made all humans in his image. And of course, this has a couple of different implications. The first is that every human being has incalculable worth, regardless of ability or disability, no matter who we are or what we've done, every human being has incalculable worth just from the fact that they are made in God's image. And of course, it also means, though, that each human being has a a calling, And that calling is to partner with God, using God's wisdom to bring about flourishing, what what the Bible calls shalom to his creation. For instance, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now, there are a couple of words in there that make people uncomfortable, the word rule and subdue, because they sound negative, they sound uh, kind of violent, actually. But actually, they mean to impose order on the world in order to bring about flourishing. Now, of course, humans do this through things like science and horticulture and psychology and, and other tools that we have. We also do it through creating structures and institutions like families and businesses and governments that, that uh, promote uh, cooperation among people. Okay? God calls humans to use the wisdom and the gifts that he gives us in order to bring out the best in his creation. Now, of course, unfortunately, the very first humans chose to reject God, to reject God's wisdom, and use their God-given freedom and power to serve themselves. They they could have found their source of life in God himself, but instead, they decided to trust their own wisdom and forge their own path, and we've been doing it ever since. And because of that, humans, rather than being agents of God's shalom, are sin- unleashes chaos on the world. And this went on for quite some time, but of course God had a plan. God, who loves his creation, made a plan. it started with a family. Well, it actually started with a man, a man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God initiated a covenant with Abraham, calling him to move from his homeland and to leave his tribal gods and move to a land that God would show him. And in return for his faithfulness, this is what God said. This is the calling of Abraham. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse Uh, And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And it was at that moment that Abraham's family, the 12 tribes of Israel, became the people of God. Okay, but notice that they weren't chosen just for their own salvation. They weren't chosen just to enjoy relationship with God, although it was that as well. But they were actually given a calling to be the people through whom God would bless all the families Of the earth. Well, of course, Abraham obeyed God and moved to the land that God had promised him. But through a long series of events, Abraham's descendants ended up as slaves in Egypt. They spent 400 years in Egypt in all. But again, God had a plan. He wasn't satisfied to leave them there languishing under the thumb of an empire. And so he called a man named Moses to liberate them from the oppressive power of Pharaoh. But again, God didn't just rescue the people of Israel from Egypt so they could go their own way. He brought them out of Egypt so they could fulfill the calling that God had given to Abraham. And so from Egypt, he led them to a place called Sinai. And he told them what their calling was. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6 writes this, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So their calling was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, what is a priest? A priest is a mediator. A priest is someone who represents God to the people and intercedes to God on behalf of the people. Okay? That was the calling of God's people, the people of Israel. But in order to do this, they had to be set apart. They had to be a holy nation. They needed to live differently than the people around them. And and just the act of living differently from all of the other people would cause the nations to pay attention. Okay, So how should they live? Well, the law of Moses told them their faithfulness to God would be a witness to the nations of the greatness of their God. And look what Deuteronomy chapter 4 says. God is giving these instructions to the people He says, observe these laws carefully for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Now, while there were many regulations in the law of Moses, at the heart of them were two primary ones. Jesus later would say, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The first is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the second one was this, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the people of Israel wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, but eventually they did enter that promised land that God had shown Abraham all those years before. Now it was time to see if they were really ready to live as the people of God. As they entered, God gave them some instructions for living in the land. First, he told them not to intermingle with the Canaanites who were living there. In fact, they were to drive them out. But this was of course, because God was a racist, but it was because he knew that in Israel's fragile state, they couldn't resist the allure of pagan religion. He didn't want them to be influenced by Canaanite religion and to give in to idol worship and sexual immorality and the failure to do justice. He told them to be separate, but he also told them that if they were faithful to their calling to be the people of God, then he would provide for them and protect them, and he would bless them. Because they finally had a place of their own, he also commanded this. He said, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. Why? Well, because of their backstory. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. But just like Adam and Eve rejected God's provision and wisdom and calling, so did the people of Israel. They intermingled with the Canaanites and turned to other gods, turned to immorality. They failed to promote justice in the land, failed to care for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. See, they had fallen prey to the lie that as long as they did their religious duty, as long as they were offering their sacrifices at the temple and their prayers at the temple, that what they did in everyday life didn't really matter. But God, through the prophet Isaiah, warned them that because of this, judgment was about to come. And He writes this in Isaiah chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than... Enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Because when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Because your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Well, what happened? Well, Israel didn't repent. And as a result, chaos was unleashed on the people of Israel. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, and they were taken into exile in Babylon. But even in the middle of judgment, God was faithful. He didn't leave them alone. Because the had promised that one day a Messiah would come and deliver them. And, And while Israel believed that this deliverance would be for them and against everyone else, it was actually the fulfillment of God's promise that he made to Abraham to bless all of the nations through him and his family. That's why the prophet Hosea wrote, I will call... I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Well, in just 70 short years, Israel was allowed to return to Jerusalem, but of course many of them didn't. For them, that ship had sailed, and even when they returned, they actually were never really free Their throat was always under the foot of the empire of the day, whether it was the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. And for hundreds of years, God seemed to be absent. But when the time was right, an angel appeared to a teenage girl and told her that she would give birth to a son and that that son would be the Messiah. But there's a twist. You see, God didn't just send a Messiah. He himself took on flesh in the person of Jesus. And that Jesus was to become the new Adam, to do what Adam and Eve could not do, to be the new Israel, what, to do what Israel could not do, to be the great high priest, to fulfill the calling that his people could never fulfill to bring flourishing to the world. And of course, even at the beginning of his ministry, he announced that very thing. At the beginning of his public ministry, his first act in in Luke chapter 4 was to walk into the synagogue and open the scroll of Isaiah. And he announced his own messiahship by reading, from the prophet Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was the ultimate first step to blessing all the nations of the earth, the Messiah doing righteousness and justice and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But of course, that blessing didn't just end with Jesus. During his ministry, Jesus called 12 disciples, patterned after the 12 tribes of Israel, to learn from him and to carry on his work after he was gone. At one point, he said to one of his disciples, he said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew's Gospel tells us that when Jesus had formed his church, he stood on the side of a hill, just like Moses did centuries before, and he shared with them God's law. This time, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the law wasn't new general rules for all of humanity. It was actually specifically for his people, for his followers, to be his representatives in the world. Jesus says that his disciples' obedience needed to go beyond the obedience of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. He told them that if they were distinct, if he, if they were acting as a city on a hill, if they were acting as and letting their light shine by following his teachings, then other people would see their good deeds and give glory to their Father in heaven. And of course, in this law, the ultimate act of obedience to this law is summed up in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, where Jesus says this, "'You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies.'" And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. To love their enemies, Jesus said, was to be like their Father. This is how they were to be different from the people around them. Jesus brought flourishing through healing the sick and casting out demons and preaching the good news of God's kingdom. And he told his disciples, the church, that they would do greater things even than he did. But Jesus' preaching about the kingdom of God threatened the establishment, threatened the Roman Empire, threatened the Jewish religious leaders, and so they worked together and had him killed. Well, little did they know, their violence only worked to accomplish his plan. You see, true to his teachings, the way that Jesus would bring about victory was not through killing his enemies, but through dying for them. His death would be the ultimate sacrifice that brought forgiveness of sin. His death meant life for all of creation. Humanity did nothing to deserve it, but God in his mercy and through Jesus' death offers us life. But as Jesus' body lay in the grave, his disciples thought this was the end of their dream. But in an unexpected twist, they found that the grave could not hold him. On the third day, when some of his followers went to the tomb, they found it empty. And then the unthinkable happened. They saw Jesus alive. What was intended as Jesus' demise was actually his coronation as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples preparing them to carry on the work, the calling that he had given them. When he was gone, before he left them, he gave them a calling. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. But he also told them that they don't have to do it alone. That when he was gone, they would go to Jerusalem and wait for the gift that he gave them. And then this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were to go and to share the good news of Jesus, not just to to their fellow Jews, but to all of the families of the world. They were to be a blessing to all of the people of the world. And they did just that. After the Holy Spirit fell on them, At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they preached boldly to both Jews and to Gentiles. And just like Jesus commissioned, uh, they gathered together as the church, dedicated to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and to prayer, and sharing with each other and anyone who had need. The church was truly a place of thriving. It was a family. But this new group of believers, Jesus' church... They didn't just exist for themselves. The writer Luke tells us that in this gathering of believers, there was no needy person among them. Not only was their task to get people to heaven, but it was also to proclaim the reign of God here and now, to model and promote mercy, justice, and righteousness in the world. Well, through the years, the apostles wrote down their teaching for the sake of the new believers both Jews and Gentiles, people from every tribe and nation who are popping up everywhere. In Peter's letter, he echoes the descriptions of the people of God from Sinai way back thousands of years before, and he applied them not to Israel, but applied them to the church. We, read, we heard Layla read it earlier. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Well, at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the prophet John uh, wrote a book to encourage the churches in Asia who were under the fist of the Roman Empire. The churches were tempted to either give up their faith under the threat of persecution or to accommodate their beliefs to the way of life to fit with the Roman Empire. And just like Jesus warned his followers in the Sermon on the Mount to be salt and light in the world, John actually warned them to be either hot or cold, not to allow themselves to adjust to room temperature, if you will. Of course, hot water is good for washing and cold water is good for drinking, But room temperature is only good for growing bacteria. And so he encourages them to be distinct from the world around them. But not only for themselves, but for the sake of the world. And he says that they can be okay with suffering in this life. Because Jesus, that King of Kings... And Lord of lords, the sacrificial lamb, is coming again. And he will bring about the ultimate flourishing of creation. This is our origin story, church. Tells us where we come from. It forms our identity. It it forms our, our calling as the people of God. And so the question is, how do we break it down? How do we say, well, what does this mean for us as the people of God? Well, all we have to do is think through our story and we can see that as the people of God, we are people who are called to care for one another as family. We are called to carefully maintain our identity in Christ through regular worship and discipleship. We are to represent God to the world and to intercede to God on behalf of the world. We need to be praying for our neighbors. We are to be salt and light in the world and through our good deeds and faithful observant to Jesus' teaching. We are to care for the poor and the marginalized, to not cater to the rich and the powerful. We are to treat foreigners among us well because we were once foreigners ourselves. And we are to bear witness to the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we await his return to restore everything to the way it was created to be. Now our local church here is just one expression of the worldwide, multi-ethnic, multinational family of God. But wherever the church resides, anywhere in the world throughout history, we have the same origin story. We tell that same story over and over and over again because it tells us who we are. And we are all working to fulfill the same calling to be a blessing to all the families on the earth. And so the question is what part do you play in the church's story? Do you claim that as your story? Do you go back and and see yourself in each of those times in the church's history? Well, you should. Why? Because God has adopted you into that story. Of course, he did that to give you a family. But he did it not just to give you a family, but he did it to give you also a calling. And I hope that you'll continue to walk with us. If you're in a small group, um, or I hope that you'll be a part of a small group, Uh, So you can talk through that. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for us as a church to walk through that story and to learn more about who we are? God, we thank you for the calling that you have given us to be a nation of priests, a holy people, people who are called out of darkness into your glorious light. There are so many different ways that we can describe what our calling is as your people. But God, I pray that most of all that we would recognize that the church is not our idea. It's not ours to do with whatever we want. And certainly there will be particularities of it depending on where we are and the gifts and the um, interests, the abilities of the people that are in any local congregation. But God, ultimately we have that same purpose. We have that same calling. And so I pray that as we go through this story this week, that we retell it. And we remember that this is not just the story of some people who lived thousands of years ago. This is our story. It tells us who we are. And it tells us the business that we are to be about. May we always remember and may we be faithful to that calling pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church sermon podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.